My guest on the Blind Broadcaster Pod is the longtime voice of the Tennessee Volunteers football and men's basketball teams on radio. And from time to time, we'll do TV for women's basketball and baseball. Bob Kessling is my guest this week. If you like this interview and episode, please rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Podcast on Apple Podcasts and most podcasting platforms. If you have any suggestions or ideas of people you would like to have me interview on this podcast, please email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb. And if you want to try to find me on Facebook, try using the email at the top of the intro. Enjoy the interview with Bob Kessling here on the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. This is a Believe Podcast Network production. All righty. Interview 21 on this therapeutic edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. How about that? Yeah, really. How about that? That's pretty special. Well, working on it. <laughs> you know how that goes. I know. And today, working with the lead broadcaster of football and basketball on radio and occasional baseball guy when he gets a chance to work on TV. But we'll get into all that. <clears throat> With Bob Castle. Took us a minute, but well worth the wait. First off, where did you get your start? And were there any opportunities in high school for broadcast for you? No, uh, we didn't have really any uh, opportunities in high school. And I never really thought about getting into broadcasting. I, I did have an <laughs> interesting story. There was a, this is back, this would have been back in the, 1970 71 something like that and uh, talk radio was just getting started mm -hmm. and there was a i was growing up in dayton ohio <coughs> there was a radio station there wavi that was starting to do talk shows and we thought that was pretty good so i had a couple of my buddies and we were you know we we'd sit around and talk sports all the time and i i just called the general manager of the radio station. I said, Hey, we're, you know, three high school kids. We like to talk sports and uh, want to know if maybe we could do a, a talk show, a high school talk show. And the guy said, yeah, that's great. And just like that, he put us on the air. I mean, we, he didn't, we didn't audition. We didn't do, we didn't send resumes in or anything. And I'm sure he was expecting us to go over all the high school sports that were going on. We just got on there and just started talking about the reds and about a bunch of different stuff. Might have been the worst hour of broadcasting in the history of radio. And uh, <laughs> the guy never returned my calls for a second show. So I thought right then and there, maybe my broadcasting career was over. And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it. And, but I was one of those guys that would always at night 
take the mom would tell me to go to bed and I'd always take the transistor radio in there and I'd listen to the end of the Reds game and I'd flip it over to listen to Jack Buck and Harry Carey doing the Cardinals on Camel X and then to Bob Prince, you know, on KDKA out of Pittsburgh and uh, listen to the Cleveland Indians out of three um, W E up in Cleveland. And so I would listen to any, I mean, I just thought there was that magic to radio that uh, they could take you to any single um, game. And, uh, and those were such great announcers too. I was kind of spoiled by that because those are, you know, from a baseball standpoint, those, that list were, you know, at that time, Al Michaels was doing the Reds. And mm-hmm. so they, they were the best of the best, but I always felt there was kind of a magic did I do the same thing in basketball? I'd I'd listen to the Dayton game, then I'd flip it over and listen to Ohio State, and I'd listen to Indiana and uh, flip it over. I, we could get the Purdue games there. There was Xavier and Cincinnati and Kentucky and Louisville. So uh, on WHAS, so I could listen to all those different broadcasters, and uh, so I, you know, I I was such a big sports fan that I I thought that would. Uh, that was really cool, but I never really felt anything about going into broadcast. When I got to Tennessee, I came down to Tennessee. Uh, you know, I was an okay high school athlete, nothing great. And uh, so I got a couple offers for small schools, but nothing, nothing big. And uh, had a buddy that uh, was coming down to Tennessee. His dad knew Ray Mears because Mears, of course, was from Wittenberg up in Springfield, Ohio. And so they had a relationship. And so, uh, he was going to bring his son, one of my best friends down here to talk about being a manager or walking on the basketball team or something like that. Jeff played basketball in high school. So they invited me to come with them. And I said, okay, I'd never been to Tennessee, didn't know anything about it. And uh, so I came down. So while they were in the basketball offices talking to coach Mears about the possibility of him, you know, walking on the team and maybe being a manager, I just strolled down to the football office unannounced, didn't have a, program or a roster or any game film to even prove I played high school football and uh, talked to Bill Battle's secretary. Coach Battle was then the head coach and I walked into her office and I said um, what's the process of walking on here at Tennessee? And she said I don't really know would you like to talk to Coach Battle? Within two minutes I'm in Coach Battle's office. He didn't even know if I even played high school football and we talked and then he took me down to meet uh, Kurt Watson and Don uh, McCleary, who were the freshman running back then there was freshman football. So to make the freshman uh, running back coaches. And, and uh, so I talked to them and, and um, they took me back down to coach battles office. And he said, uh, here's a workout sheet. If you can get into school, we'd love to have you as a part of the team. And I thought, wow, that, it was that easy. Of course, you know, back then the numbers were a lot different and they, they had to field a freshman team. So they, they would, they would take a bunch of players and I'm sure coach battle never thought I could get into school. So that was, there's no problem with that. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but I did get in. And uh, so I showed up at Tennessee unannounced. Well, I mean, the, the couple of coaches knew I was coming, but I mean, I didn't know any of the players on the team. Uh, I didn't even know who was playing on the varsity. I had no idea who at that time, Haskell Stanback or Bill Rudder or Condridge Holloway. I didn't know who any of those guys were. Cause I, you know, in Ohio, you follow the big 10. I didn't follow SEC football, but I thought it was a great uh, opportunity to come down here. And uh, so walked on the team. Uh, we played six games, I guess that year, six or seven. And I practiced with the varsity and really liked it. But 
kind of knew after that first year. Uh, I mean, I did. I got to play a lot on the freshman team, so it wasn't like I was a total stiff. I mean, I was. I played against Notre Dame and against Alabama, and Georgia Tech, and Kentucky, and those folks. So, uh, you know, but I, I knew I was never going to be a great player. And uh, so I had to make the decision, do I want to keep being a tackling dummy for the next couple of years and hoping maybe get on the kickoff team or do I need to do something else? So I decided that I probably needed to get off my life and uh, got into school and, um, but still was not, you know, I was not majoring in broadcasting. I was, uh, I knew I wanted to do something in sports, but I wasn't sure what that was. And so I thought getting a PR degree would, uh, probably would be a good thing because then I could go into a, a lot of different areas. And so uh, I got into college communications and uh, was in uh, uh, PR. And of course, they gave you a, an opportunity to do some uh, uh, advertising and writing and a bunch of things that really turned out later on really helped me. And uh, so that's how it started. But I wasn't, I, I came down here not thinking I was going to be a broadcaster. And uh, Talked myself into a job, a summer job with the double A baseball team here in town, the old Knoxville Sox. And I was the number two man on a two man staff. I put the flag up and cooked the hot dogs and took tickets and went out and sold program ads and took guys to the doctor and took the uniforms over every day to get them cleaned at CNS laundry here in town. And so I was just doing, and I was having a ball, got a chance to meet all the players and got a friendship with them. In fact, I'm still friends with some of them to this day and a bunch of them went to the big leagues. And so that was really fun. And, uh, but now I was going to be a general manager of a professional baseball team. That was going to be my job. And, uh, that was my goal. And I've set up to do that. And, um, so while I was at the ballpark, I thought, well, you know, if we get more people to come to the games, uh, maybe I'll get a raise. I was making a hundred bucks a week, working mm-hmm. about 80 hours a week, but sure. I didn't, back then you don't care. You know, you're in college. It was just spending money. You're just looking but, to get your foot in the door. Yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to, and I, and I loved it cause I love baseball and I just, you're, I said, you're kidding me. I get to be around the guys and, and get to be out here for batting practice and, and that kind of stuff. And you're paying me to do this and I get free hot dogs. I mean, this is a pretty good deal. And uh, so I, but I decided, I said, you know, if we get more people to the games, maybe I'll get a raise. And so I would uh, write up little 30-second to a minute voicers after the game. And I would call. Back then, all the radio stations had, uh, you know, full-time DJs. So they had nighttime DJs. And I would call and and uh, get them to record this. And they the morning DJs would play it on their the morning shows and everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was pretty simple, you know, like Mike Squires hit a three-run homer in the eighth inning as the Knoxville Sox powered by the Savannah Braves last night. The Sox have won two in a row, and they'll try and uh, um, make it two straight over the Braves, you know, tomorrow night at Bill Meyer Stadium, first pitch at 7.30. You know, that, those times, you know, real simple. Yeah, 30 simple. 30 to 45-second blue picks. Yeah, yeah, just to basically get free advertising on the radio stations. Well, as it turned out, WIBK ran those, uh, the big radio station here in town. They ran them. And uh, so their sports guy called me and said, hey, listen, we're looking for a fill-in sports guy. Are you interested? I said, well, yeah. Heck yeah. So so I talked myself into a part-time sportscasting job at IVK. I'm working for the Knoxville Sox baseball team, and I'm going to school full-time. So my uh, my calendar was pretty full every single day. And 
of course, it lined up in the summer a little bit because I, I was only taking a couple of classes. But during the fall and the and the other quarters, I mean, it was it was pretty busy time for me. But um, so now I'm getting ready to graduate, and uh, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm you know, I'm a baseball guy. I'm going to go to Nashville, and the baseball meetings are there, and I'm going to get a job with a, with a baseball team somewhere, and uh, that's where it's going to go. And and I'm walking out the door, getting ready to drive over to Nashville, and Bobby Denton is the general manager of uh, WIVK at the time, the later play by the uh, PA voice at Neyland Stadium. People know him the best for that. And as I'm walking out the door, he goes, where are you going? I said, well, I'm taking the rest of the day off. I'm going to Nashville trying to get a job. And he said, why don't you stay here and be the full-time sports cast, uh, sports director? I said, okay. <laughs> so I didn't go to Nashville. So squash those plans. Yeah, didn't go to Nashville, and I stayed at uh, WIVK, and uh, I was the sports director. The other, uh, the guy who had been doing it was went to Nashville to work at uh, uh, KDA over in Nashville, mm-hmm. Paul Lyle, and uh, so I was full time sports director. Just graduated from college, and uh, that was my job. And uh, I still did some stuff with the baseball team, and through that uh wivk decides they want to start doing the lady ball games and so john ward and i and aw davis started doing the lady ball postseason games this would have been in 78 i guess so the next year uh wscv and wkgn were going to carry the lady balls and uh ward decided that he didn't have the time to do all the games and so i got the job doing lady ball basketball and then uh the the baseball team decides they're start going to do and start doing games. And uh, so I was working at WIBK and I was calling the Knoxville at that time they switched over to the Knoxville Blue Jays, but I'm calling the Knoxville Blue Jay games on another radio station, uh, which is what was the old WBIR. And so, uh, you know, so I'm always, uh, I was always working and uh, still didn't exactly know that the broadcasting was going to be full time for me because I still had in the back of my mind, but I wanted to get into baseball. I wanted to do baseball stuff. But uh, then in 1980, uh, kind of out of the blue, uh, WBIR called and said that the Scott Sams was leaving, going to Dallas, and they needed a sports director. And was I interested? And I s- said, well, yeah, I'm interested in talking to it. So, yeah, I'd never been on TV before in my life. <laughs> and I went over to uh, Channel 10, and I auditioned, and they offered me the job. I thought they were crazy. I said, wow, how can you hire a guy that's never even been on TV before? But uh, they said they thought I had some potential, and they so they hired me. And uh, so then that's how I got into TV. And uh, through all of this, uh, I developed a relationship with John Ward. So I was working on the Vol Network, spotting for him and doing pre- and post-game stuff. And uh, I'm just kind of piecemealing together a career, trying to figure out what I want to do and what I like and what I don't like. And then uh, um, by doing the lady balls and doing the baseball, and uh, I, I actually did the Knoxville Cherokee hockey team for a couple of years. And oh, so, we, we got to get into that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was good. Did the Nashville Sounds for a couple of years on television. You worked with Jameson, right? I did. I did. We uh, split it up. We we do. I do the first three innings on uh, George Plaster was on those broadcasts too. And I do the first three innings on TV and then I'd go over to radio and Bob would flip over and do the, the TV and then we'd flip back. And I don't know, we did, they were a Reds affiliate there. I, know, I remember that. And, uh, so, uh, so I did those for two years. We did maybe 10 games a year something like that. But, uh, 
uh, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I really enjoyed that. And so I thought, well, maybe this will be the, in fact, at the time, Joe Buck was doing the Louisville games. So I, that's the first time I met which Joe was Buck. A, which at the time was a Cardinal affiliate. That's correct. And so, uh, so that's the first time I ever met Joe Buck. Yeah, the sounds were AAA at that. Yeah, you know, they uh, weren't. I think they were part of the what was it, the Southern League or the, I, or, mm, the or the International well, League. Or I think like that? I think they're in the International League back then. So something like that, because it was a lot. It was a lot easier to travel than it is now on the Pacific Coast. Like, yeah, I remember we did the. We only did, I think, two road games. One, I know we went to Oklahoma City one year, and boy, it was hotter than blazes in Oklahoma City. I remember that. Oh, oh and. Uh, so, uh, but uh, anyway, so, so I'm doing all these different things and not really knowing exactly uh, where I'm going to wind up. But uh, Lucy, the thing I, I did, I never said no. And I always thought and still believe that you get better by the number of reps you get. And so I would do anything to, uh, to get on behind the mic and, and try and improve my craft a little bit and, uh, uh, so it was in uh, and, and hockey really helped me too because that was you know it's such a fast sport and uh, so we did the old Knoxville Cherokees and we heck I went to Toledo did games in Cincinnati and uh, went all over the place with those guys went over to North Carolina and uh, it was this was but you, you know you also learned that uh, it's minor league hockey is not the easiest thing to uh, if you ever saw the movie Slapshot with Paul Newman, that has a lot of truth to it in minor league hockey. Speaking and, of hockey movies, have you watched yeah. the Have you watched the Mystery Alaska hockey film? Uh, uh-uh. no, I haven't seen that one. I think I've got it on DVD somewhere. Maybe yeah, I've got it still somewhere packed away. Yeah. But that was well, my minor league hockey movie. Yeah, my my uh, great hockey story though is uh, <laughs> we we had a two game road trip. We were right. going to do going to play Greensboro on Friday night, and then Louisville on Saturday night. Oh my! And so, and then coming home on Sunday. So we load up the bus at the Civic Coliseum at seven o'clock Friday morning, and we were heading to Greensboro. And of course, uh, I'd never been on the you know hockey bus before. And every right. all the other times, I just uh, I would just uh, drive. But you know, the drive from Greensboro up to Louisville, I thought was going to be a little bit tough and that's a lot of driving. So I was just going to ride the bus. So we get to, we play at the Greensboro Coliseum and uh, we, uh, we lost the game. As I recall, Bill Nyrop was our head coach and Nyrop of course played in the NHL. He was one of the old tough guys, you know, that didn't wear a helmet and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he didn't put up with a lot of stuff. And uh, right. so uh, I'm, you're, you're always scared when you're a hockey guy that uh, the announcer, they're going to leave you because they ain't waiting on you. And so as the game is over, I mean, I pack up my stuff as quick as I can and, and I'm heading out to where the bus is. And right before I get on the bus, Nyrop comes up to me and says, Hey, Bob said, they've got some extra, they got a separate building here where they they're doing the stats and everything. You know where that building is? I said, yeah, it's right. It's right over there. It was where the media, you know, was hanging out. Right. He said, listen, I need 25 copies of the stats. Can you go get me 25 copies of the stats? I said, sure. Uh Oh, so I lug my radio gear over there, and uh, and uh, so I'm waiting in the office, and of course the the there's a jam, and there's the toner runs out, and everything that could possibly happen to a copy machine happens. But finally, they get it cranked up. I get my 25 copies, put them under my arm, get my radio gear, my bag. I'm wobbling out to the bus, and it's gone. 
Oh it's, no, it's it's left me, and I'm sitting the there. Ever, the ever dreaded. Please go get me the copies. And okay, boys, let's load the bus. Let's go. That's it. That's <laughs> it. And so anyway, and they so just now, left you. They left me, and Man. so I'm sitting outside the Greensboro Coliseum, which is not in the not in the best part of Greensboro. There, right. this is before cell phones. They've locked the office, so there's nobody I can call. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to survive the next hour without getting killed or mugged or, or <laughs> you know, have all my stuff stolen. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm starting to feel sorry for myself. You know, you're about ready to start crying or you're just thinking, this is miserable. I got somehow I got to go get, rent a car and I got to drive to Louisville. I got to get out of here. I got to find a place to maybe get some sleep. And I'm sitting there, all this stuff is going through my mind. And all of a sudden the bus comes back, the bus pulls up. And so they open the door to the bus and it's not, Oh, Bob, we're so sorry. We left you or gosh, it was really rude of us. Nairob goes, where are the stats? Give me the stats. All he came back for was the stats. That's all he cared about. They didn't care about me. So I got a pretty good inclination. So anyway, we drive. Up. I mean, this, is, this would, if this was in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. So exactly. We, you can't, you can't go from Greensboro to Louisville without going over the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so we had to go all the way back to Knoxville and then go up I-75 to Louisville. So it's about six in the morning. We've been traveling all night from Greensboro. Uh, we go this past- was Now, let me set, this was the same Friday into Saturday, right? Yeah. We were Saturday playing the morning. same day. Yeah, Saturday morning. Now, we've lost Friday night in Greensboro. It's Saturday morning, about 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Been on the bus all night. You can imagine how what the bus smelled like. Oh. And, uh, and so, uh, anyway, so we go steaming. It's a sleeper. You know, there's some guys that are sleeping. And the stars got the sleeper bunks. The rest of us, you know, rummies or any any couch or any place we could find. But they are guys laying on top of each other and hockey bags and sticks and all kinds of stuff everywhere all over the bus. And uh, so we go steaming past the I-75 exit. I said, well, that's weird. And uh, we go out to Sutter's Mill Apartments. And so the bus pulls in the parking lot. And there's a guy standing there with a hockey stick and an equipment bag. That's our new defenseman. So, oh, no. Yeah. So, we're so you literally had to make a stop, go get yeah. a new player just to get, to get him on the bus. Yeah. We go back, we pick up a new defenseman. Our, the one that just got cut gets off the bus and he leaves and the guy's just see you later, you know, Pierre or whatever his name was. And our new guy gets on, he just walks around and, you know, shakes hands and, and then he finds a bunk. So he must've been a pretty good player. And then we turn around and then we go back up 75 to Louisville and we, 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 yeah, we get to Louisville. I don't know. It was about noon or one o'clock, something like that. And that we checked in the executive hotel, which is right there by freedom hall. And because uh, the arena, I think it was Broadbent Arena, which is right there by Freedom Hall. Pretty nice arena, actually. Oh, wow. And uh, so uh, so we, we had like four rooms. There were like 20 guys, and we had four rooms just so we could take showers and, and, that, and just stretch out a little bit. So I go over to the arena, get everything set up. We uh, play Louisville that night. We lost the game. We load back on, on the bus. They didn't ask me for stats this time. They had their stats. So I get my radio gear and make sure I get my butt on the bus. Mm-hmm. We take off, uh, leave Louisville about 11 o'clock. We get to Lexington, just outside of Lexington, uh, just mm-hmm. after midnight. 
or so, and the bus breaks down. And now we're on I-75 at about one in the morning. And finally, they, the belt broke on the bus and they finally bring a mechanic out and uh, they fix it. About 3.30 in the morning, we're finally on our way uh, back to Knoxville. We, we arrive at the Coliseum about seven in the morning. And I'm thinking on my drive back to my apartment, I'm thinking there's got to be a better way to make a living than this. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> hey, look, I can understand. I'm like, geez. I like, like come on, man. You get, you, get le- you get left in Greensboro on the dangerous part of yeah. town. You you know, you get scats. The coach basically says, tell the boys, to tell the driver, <laughs> okay, boys, let's go. Then That's they come it. back, and then he doesn't even say sorry or anything. He just goes, no. no. The so, okay. Let's back up a little bit because there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Back when you were doing the Knoxville Sox, who were you working with? And then the uh, Sox slash Blue Jays, when you were working with a two-man booth, who was the lead guy? And then with the Blue Jays, were you the lead guy, or was there somebody else doing the broadcast? No, I was, how I, the was broadcasts always, I would no, I was always, yeah, I was always the number one guy. And then we had a guy named Bill Page who worked at the radio station, W H E L. Um, but he didn't do every game. We, we, you know, back then in the Southern League had a, an agreement that you did the home games. Right. And then, for example, Huntsville or Chattanooga would pick up your broadcast because you didn't, they didn't travel. Some of the teams did, a couple of the teams did. I think Memphis did and maybe Birmingham because I think Eli Gold back then was doing the Birmingham Barons. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So, but and for example, I would, they would, but they would carry our broadcast on Sunday when Eli was off doing NASCAR stuff. So, uh, but Bill Page and I did the games, and then uh, later when we started doing them again, we, we took a break for a couple of years, and then uh, I think WIBK or uh, it was, it was their AM station back then. I, I don't know what to call it. Where I guess they might have been WIBK AM, but they would they would they did some of the games, and Mike Keith and I actually would uh, do the games. And so I was at channel 10 at the time. And so I would come over and uh, I would start the game and I do the game until nine o'clock. I'd always leave at nine o'clock to go back over to channel 10 to put together the sports cast. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'd leave at nine and then Mike would finish up the game. How many innings that might be uh, if it went extra innings or whatever. So what it ended up, I'd do about, um, I'd do maybe the first four and then Mike would do the last five. And so that's how Mike got his baseball experience. And then, um, then I, and, and I was doing UT baseball also. So, uh, and then Mike, uh, was able to w- work with me doing the UT baseball games. So, and that's how Mike got, uh, started doing UT stuff. Then when I started doing JP, uh, baseball, then Mike took over the UT stuff full time. So it's interesting how all this kind of winds around and works in together. So, when you started doing the Lady Ball basketball games, yeah, you were the number two with Ward, and you say who was your who was the color analyst that would rotate with between you and uh, Ward? No, A. W. Davis. Point? We, uh, yeah, in, I think it was seventy eight, and uh, at that time, WIBK did not have the Vol Network, and uh, number one station in town, but WNOX was the 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 Vol Network station here in town. But Bobby Denton was making a huge pitch to get the Tennessee games on WIBK. And so he decided that if uh, we did the Lady Vol post game 
uh, postseason games, that might be a good inclination that uh, uh, IBK was serious. And so uh, they decided to do that. And, of course, you know, Pat Summit had been to the Final Four the year before, and they had a mm-hmm. chance to make it again. And so um, it was John Ward and A.W., and they were doing the, the, the men's games at that time. And I got included on this on the uh, travel roster because I was a sports director at WIBK. So I did the pregame and the halftime and the postgame stuff. And John and AW did the game. Right. And right. Uh, so we uh, we uh, got on a van with Ernie Robertson, and we we had to go back then. They had you had to win your state tournament first. It was AIW basketball, not oh, NCAA. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so there was a state tournament. So you had to win your state tournament first to advance to this what they called a satellite tournament. Okay. And and uh, and I think you could actually lose a game and keep playing back then. And so uh, so with Tennessee went to the state tournament at Martin. First time I've ever been to Martin, Tennessee, and which of course Pat Summit. That's where she went to school. And then uh, Lady Vols won there, and they advanced to. Uh, Cleveland, Mississippi, and Delta State. And they won there, and then we went to Fordham and played at Fordham mm-hmm. with a chance to go to the Final Four. And uh, so I recall, well, I think they lost at Fordham. I think they lost at somebody at Fordham, never made it to the Final Four. But uh, so then the next year, um, we started out, uh, A.W. wasn't doing the games, but I was, I was going to be John's color guy. And so we did, I think, the first couple of games. And then he kind of decided that was too much, too much basketball and there are going to be some conflicts. And so he just kind of handed the ropes over to me and said, you know, you can do it. I, because there wasn't any money in it. I mean, I got paid 15 bucks a game, as I recall, and had to pay my gas out of that. So, I mean, it wasn't a lucrative business, but I didn't look at it. It was something. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't look at it as, women's basketball like everybody else did i mean sure. everybody thought, why would you be doing women's basketball i viewed it as college basketball uh sec basketball and, and an opportunity a, yeah there's only a handful of guys doing it and uh so it's a good way to get reps it's better than calling maybe you know doing traveling around uh doing high school games this is probably you know you get the, the trips are a lot better i mean i went all over the country you know, with them from UCLA to, to Texas, to Connecticut, you know, things I would never have been able to do if I hadn't decided to do it. And uh, so, and as it turned out, when I went to WIB, uh, to uh, WBIR to be the sports director, uh, they felt it was a uh, really a positive thing for me to have a relationship with Pat Summit and it added to my credibility. So, um, so that's, that's how that worked. And so I kept doing those uh, for about what, 16 years, well, from 78 until almost 20 years I did them. So. Yeah. Cause I remember you were on the 98, you were on the 98 call. If my math is yeah. right. You're, I think right. that was your, that was your last season. Yeah. My math is right. Cause I mean, you and Mickey Deerstone have rotated doing play by play. And I think the, what was it? Final four, you had both those games, I think, or was it Mickey with the final four and you had the national championship call with Mickey as your color guy? Yeah, I, no, I was a primary guy and Mickey would do games if I had a conflict back then, you know, I was working for Jefferson Pilot on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So if I had a conflict, 
you know, with my TV game, uh, then Mickey would fill in for me. So I think Mickey maybe did 10 games during the season, but man, I was a primary guy. So when we did the postseason, uh, it was all you. No, Mickey, we, Mickey would, would do the pregame and postgame and those things. So, and then Mickey would kind of do the lead ins after commercials, but yeah, Mickey and I teamed up together and called the postseason. but I was the number one guy. So with the, what thing did you feel like you learned from baseball that you still use to this very day? And then what were the biggest takeaways when you started doing ball network stuff? And then when you got the lady balls gig baseball, and then when you finally took over as the lead broadcaster for football and men's basketball, what were the do's and the don'ts and the things that you used from when you started to what you're using now? Well, I think you learn from everybody you're associated with, whether it's your, from your spot charts, whether it's from your game prep. I mean, I learned a lot from John Ward about being prepared and making sure you do your research. And even though you might have stacks and stacks of notes that you never get to, you never know when you might need one of those notes and you better know where it is and better be prepared. But, you know, you, you take something from each guy in terms of, uh, cause everybody does their boards differently. Everybody sure. does their spot charts differently. Everybody does their game prep differently. Everybody has a way that they feel comfortable with. And you can't, while you want to take the best of what everybody does, you can't just say, okay, well, this is the way Tom Hammond does it. And so this is how I'm going to do it. That, that just doesn't work. And, um, Ward taught me that uh, he'll let you make a mistake, but don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. And, and uh, Ward would always tell us, and it, it would ring through your head before every broadcast, uh, I don't need you excited. I need you prepared. And that was, that was always a good thing. And Lindsey Nelson, you know, I was also very blessed to get to uh, know Lindsey Nelson when he came back here after he retired from doing the San Francisco Giants in Notre Dame. He came back here and lived up on Cherokee Bluff, uh, right by campus. He said he'd get up in the morning and get his newspaper and his uh, glass of orange juice. He'd go out on the back porch and he'd look out over the campus and he would salute the general and then he'd sit down and read the newspaper. <laughs> he said he did that every morning. And uh, I always thought that was really neat. But uh, Lindsey, uh, was very gracious in terms of me being able to pick his brain. He would do a little thing on channel 10, a little five minutes, like an Andy Rooney type deal. If you remember Andy Rooney from 60 minutes, but well, I've uh, heard of him. yeah. So it'd be called Lindsay at large <laughs> and it'd be a three minute uh, essay about anything other than sports. For example, he would do something on why is gay street in Knoxville called gay street. <laughs> no, no, you know, nobody knows that because uh, we've all drive across the Gay Street Bridge, but nobody knows really why is the name Gay Street. Mm -hmm. uh, you tell you, you do stories about where General Neyland's buried and about the the organ at the Tennessee Theater and, you know, stuff that you'd, you've lived here for years, but it'd be stuff that you didn't know anything about. And Lindsay would get up there and they'd turn the camera on and they'd point to Lindsay and tell him to go. 
and he'd go, they don't want it to be three minutes and he would go three minutes on the nose without stumbling or bumbling and would just knock it out without a script. I mean, it was the most incredible thing I ever saw in my life, just how well prepared he was. And sometimes he would, after his wife died, he would uh, go to dinner by himself down at the Regus on 17th. There was an old restaurant down there, really, really a fabulous restaurant. It was a um, spinoff of the, the famed Regus restaurant downtown. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I'd get off the newscast at Channel 10 and I'd drive by there to see if he was sitting in there. And he usually was in a back corner booth by himself. And I'd kind of barge in there, you know, just would you mind if I sat with you to keep you company? And he was always very gracious. I always wanted to buy his meal, but he'd never let me do it. <laughs> and we'd sit there and talk. We wouldn't talk about sports. We'd, we'd talk about everything. And he was so engaging. And, uh, and once in a while, I'd ask him about broadcasting. And he would tell me that, uh, just remember, you're not the story. The story is the story. And don't get in the way of the story. Good point. And yeah. And I always remember that, that uh, people, uh, it doesn't matter who the, the broadcaster is. Mm-hmm. People are turning into the broadcast to hear how their team is doing. Mm-hmm. So the people that call, uh, you know, we, we could dig up Mel Allen and bring him in to do the Tennessee games. And I'm not sure it's going to increase the number of listeners that much because the people that are listening that really all they care about is how their team is doing and who's got the ball and what the score is. I mean, those are the main things. And that's your job as a reporter that you have to provide the basic <laughs> instincts. Now, you know, some guys have do it different ways. Some guys have a flair. Some guys do make it about themselves. And those guys sometimes are hard to listen to, but I mean, I, I want to let, I want to know what the score is and how my guys are doing and, and all those times. And where are we at the period? Like time score yeah, period. And yeah. the other guests that I've had on my pod yeah. basically said, you better make sure you give the fans how much time's left, where the ball is, who's winning yep. and what period or quarter or inning you're in. Yeah. And you also learn that you might give the score and the time 400 times during the broadcast and the first thing somebody will tell you after the game is, well, you did a good job, but you didn't give a score. So you've got to understand that it doesn't matter how many times you give it, it's not enough. And I always tell young guys that uh, when I speak to them, I said, you know, when you're doing a broadcast, when in doubt or you have no, nothing else to say, give the score and the time, and you'll never be wrong. And that's, that's probably a good thing. So uh, you got to have kind of a, a formula on how you do it. And mine is – uh, I always remember on uh, change possession coming out of a break mm-hmm. uh, when when somebody gets a first down always give do always do a reset uh, yep. that's a great time to do a time and score and uh, but again you then you still need to work it in you know you think when you're when you're doing it was well, gosh all I'm saying is the time and the score but then you go back and listen to the uh, replay in the game and said, well, I could have probably put it in there. I could have put it in there once or twice. So I think uh, the last email I got from John Ward, when I asked him the basic question, like when he listened to, you know, my broadcast and stuff, he basically said, you give the time, the score, keep giving time, keep giving score, whatever. And go because basically if you keep up with your basics and don't lose your foundation, you're okay. 
But the question is, do you think a lot of broadcasters lose themselves because they lost their foundation? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I, I think there is a rhythm to the, to the game. I mean, you got to get into uh, – uh, it's, it's when people go to a game and they're sitting in the stands, what do they do before every play? They look at what the down and distance is. Mm-hmm. They kind of remind themselves of the score. They find out where the ball is. And so as a play-by-play guy on the radio, you've got to understand that you need to reset that for the fans in the stands because that's what they would be doing if they were in the stadium. So that's kind of how you set up your rhythm of the broadcast and make sure you all, they always know what the down and distance is, where the ball is. Uh, they They can't see – what you're talking about, but they know direction. They know if the ball's going left, they know if it's going right, they can kind of feel that. They know if it's a toss sweep, they know if it's a swing pass. They know it if you drop it over the middle, just dump it off to the tight end. They can kind of visualize that in their head. And that's kind of the basis of how you got to do all of this. What was your game prep then? And what is your game prep now? Or do you still use the same game prep for? Yeah, it's, how it's, do you... yeah, it's pretty much the same. Um, you know, I, I, I think for football, uh, you've got to start on Sunday night and kind of collect your thoughts and, uh, you know, find out what the other team did that day and, you know, the team you're getting ready to play and uh, check on injury reports and uh, all those type things. And, and then Monday – uh, you spend most of the day. Of course, there, we have press conferences. Coach Pruitt now has his press conference on Monday, and you get a chance to talk to some of the players. And so you do that on Monday, and you start working on your spot chart. Tuesday is pretty much. I spend most of all day Tuesday uh, on Tennessee and on the and get, and putting together their spot chart. And you would think, well, that shouldn't take. Well, it takes it takes quite a bit. And then uh, Wednesday, I spend on the opponent. I'll listen to their the opponent's um, um, press conferences and go through notes and uh, put together their side of it. Uh, th- then Wednesday night, Wednesday night, uh, Tim Priest and I go to practice, and uh, we will watch practice, and then we'll talk to the coordinators after practice. Uh, Thursday is kind of a polish up day. And then uh, Friday's kind of the day before the final exam. You know, you just kind of, uh, you know, Friday is always uh, usually either you're traveling or getting ready to travel if it's a road game, or you have um, um, advertisers or speeches or go meet this guy, or you've got former players that come in. Friday is always just kind of a blur because there's so many things that you're not planning on that. Uh, you know, a guy pops in, a former player pops in, uh, you know, you want to spend time with them. So that, that chews up a little bit of time. And, and, uh, so Friday just, it's kind of a blur every day, but it's, but that's, but it's fun because you get to see people and, uh, and, um, and then Saturday, you, you know, you get up early and you, you head to the stadium and I've always had this fear that, uh, I'm going to be stuck in traffic on the interstate trying to get to the stadium and I turn on the radio and they've got the opening to the ball network broadcast and I'm stuck in traffic. So hmm. I always, I always get there plenty early. So I don't have to worry about that. And, uh, and you know, when you get to the stadium, you get there a couple of hours early and you're, you, 
again, you see people and you go down and visit with the other broadcasts, the TV guys and the other uh, radio guys. We, we do Coach Pruitt's pregame uh, as soon as they get to the stadium. So that's a different uh, uh, aspect, too. So uh, it's it, it's just a full day. I mean, Saturday is busy, and then uh, we'll do the coaches' shows after the game. And so there's always stuff to do, that's for sure. How long did you do the Vintage Orange Series back in the day on CSS, and are you still doing the Vintage Orange Series on the website? Oh, man. Uh, no, we – I, we haven't done that in a long time. I, I you rattled my cage a little bit on that one, yeah. So, oh, I remember, uh, I remember watching because there were some days where CSS had nothing going, and they would just put vintage orange on, and you, it would be you, and you would either you know, you know, caption the highlight, or you'd let the legendary John Ward do his thing on the broadcast. Yeah, yeah, we did a lot of those. Uh, CSS was uh, really kind of ahead of their time a little bit there. They were just cable, so they never went on DirecTV and Dish Network, and that kind of hurt them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they kind of had it. They had they carved out their own little niche, and they came to us first. Um, and you know, it's interesting about Coach Dickey. Um, he could take information and digest it and categorize it as quickly as anybody. Uh, I've ever dealt with. And so he didn't understand what CSS was. And I walked in there and I kind of laid this out for him. I said, we're going to get a chance to uh, have our games replayed on Monday night on this regional cable system. Mm -hmm. Now, not everybody's going to be able to get it because not everybody has this cable, but they're the reason they're doing it is they're trying to drive their cable subscribers. And he understood that. I said, there's no cost to us. They're going to do all the production. They're going to pay for the announcers. We're going to get 25% of the advertising for the Vol Network to sell. Oh, wow. So that was that was our rights payment. So as much as we could sell is how much money we made. Because CSS, they're covering all the other costs. And um, and he, I mean, it was a, it was a 35, 40-minute meeting. He said, let's do it. And so we jumped in there and we got Monday nights. Uh, that was the slot we wanted. So we got our coaches show on, uh, I think at uh, six. And then we started the broadcast and we wanted it, we wanted it, the, the gist of it uh, to start before Monday night football. And so, you know, with Monday night football, they usually don't kick off to late 15 or so. Yeah. And so our game was like in the third quarter by the time, uh, Monday night football was just getting cranked up. Well, people liked that because they would watch the rest of our game and then they'd switch it over to Monday night football, which was now in the second quarter. So uh, it just worked out to be really good. And, and you knew that we, we'd hit a good thing uh, because after that first year, they, you know, all the SEC schools, you know, some of them were really late getting to the party, but then uh, they would say, well, we want, you know, we should rotate that Monday night slot. I said, uh-uh, boys, we, we've got that Monday night slot and we're not giving it up. And, uh, and that, so that, but the other aspect w- that we got on it was, uh, as part of the rights fee, they had to carry, now they wanted to carry women's basketball. They would carry every lady of all, cause none of the games were on TV back then. Right. So they would carry, they would carry every lady of all basketball game we'd give them. So we gave them most of the home games. And, uh, and which those games I would do on TV. And, uh, and we also, they also, we also got a Saturday night baseball game. 
And so Rusty Enzer and I did a baseball game every Saturday night on CSS. And if they had no other games, then they would, uh, um, then we would maybe get to do a Friday or sometimes we got to do all three games that weekend. So it was just a really a big time. It was kind of the, the first step to where we are now with the SEC network and these regional networks and CSS, um, you know, is a really great thing for them. But eventually when the SEC network came around and Fox sports came around, it kind of put them out of business, but for about 10 years or so, CSS was really a great thing for SEC football and basketball. Tell me about it. I mean, it was just good for small, you know, small schools that were trying to, you know, find a foothold. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You, really was. You were, you worked the SEC baseball tournament with Rusky injury. Cause I know, you know, you did baseball yeah. and then sometimes you do the morning session. Sometimes you do the evening session. Right. Yeah. So we, yeah, we did the, it provided us a lot of work and, you know, and coach Dickey was good about that. He would, um, you know, he would let you do those things. And he let me do the uh, NCAA basketball tournament for Westwood one, you know, on radio. So that was a thrill. So, but he was always really um, uh, very agreeable to let you do things that would help your career and we thought would help UT. What was that like doing the NCAA tournament the years that you did it? Like, how did the, you know, how did they fit pair up the teams and everything else like the broadcast side? Because I know the brackets were, you know, yeah, probably were big, but they are, you know, weren't as big as they are now. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, they just, they would just tell me, they said, go to St. Louis, you got Dave Gavitt as your partner. I said, oh, that's good. Fine with me. Let's go. So, uh, so it was, you know, it was really, uh, uh, back when I was doing it, it you would, you, kn- you knew you were going to do one game a day, you know, because you had the first game day when you had four games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you knew you were going to do one game that day from start to finish. And the next day you knew you were going to do one of the, because I guess the next day you only had two games. You were going to do e- e- one or the other lot. But you had to be prepared uh, for they would do cut-ins, you know, Brad Sham would be back in the stage, the uh, network control. And also they'd say, well, let's get an update from St. Louis and let's, you know, go to Bob Kessling and Dave Gabbitt. And then suddenly you had to pick up the play-by-play, you know, you hadn't been doing it the whole game, but suddenly you had to do it for two or three minutes while uh, you were carried on the network to get an update on what was going on in the game. So it was fun. I mean, it was really a lot of fun. And uh, now it's different because they do all the games because they've got so many ways that you can pick up the games on the different uh, channels. But, uh, you know, back then they, they were doing one game nationally, but they would flip back and forth uh, to you. So uh, anyway, that was, you know, you go back and uh, I start losing. You made me reflect a little bit. I mean, I've had really pretty blessed career, I've had a chance to do a lot of great things with a lot of great people. How do you deal with different analysts and different people? How do you like set them up or like when you you get the chance to, you know, work with them, what are your first things besides getting to know them that you and either the lady of all broadcaster or who your current football card analyst is has been for the last 20 years or 21 years now. 
or, yeah. you know, with your basketball guy that you worked with on TV when yeah. John Ward stepped down as he was flying solo. And I think you and Bert just slid over and took over for, you know, right. basketball and football. Yeah. I've always felt that the analyst is the star of the show, that your job as a play-by-play guy is to set up the analyst. I mean, I go back to the, the point is um, I don't think really um, people tune in to listen to their team's broadcasts just because of the broadcaster. I think they tune in because they want to listen to the game and how their team is doing. And my job, I think, is just to be a reporter and report on what's going on in the game and that the analyst should be the star. The analyst is the guy that has the knowledge. The analyst is the guy that is telling you what's going on in the game. And if you don't use your analyst and if you don't, break him in properly and let him show his expertise on what's going on in the game. I think you're letting the listeners down. And so, and that's always been my philosophy. And when I was working at Jefferson pilot, uh, doing the TV games for the sec, a lot of times I would get the rookie analysts and I would kind of break them in a little bit, you know, some, uh, just simple things like, um, when the guy scores a basket, I'm going to shut up for a second. And if you have something to add, uh, do it right then and tell me what just happened. Don't tell me, tell me why it happened. Don't tell me what happened. I saw what happened. Tell me why it happened. And you've got until the ball gets to midcourt and then you got to give it back to me. And so you, you tell them that. And then again, after the guy scores and let's say he's fouled, I'm going to shut up. And you take over the replay. That's where you shine. You take over the replay. And it's kind of the same thing in football. You know, you call the play and then you shut up and then you let your analyst, if he has something to say, you let your analyst step in there and uh, that's his time to shine. And uh, if the people think that Burt Bertelkamp and, and Tim Priest are great, then I've done my job. And that's kind of the way I look at it. When you took over as a lead broadcaster, when John Ward and Bill Anderson for football, and then when John stepped down, what were the things you were wanting to do as a lead broadcaster? What were, you know, I don't, I don't know how many changes you were wanting to make or what things as a lead broadcaster you were looking or wanting to get. Well, the only thing John told me was, uh, ever. And, and I never talked to him about taking, taking the job. Right. And I never asked for his endorsement. I never asked for him to call somebody and I didn't do any of that. I just, uh, um, in fact, I didn't, didn't even, didn't even send an application in and, uh, hadn't heard from coach Dickey the whole year. you know, after John announced he's retiring, I hadn't heard from coach Dickey that whole year. I didn't, really hear from coach Dickey until the Monday after John's last game. So I didn't even fall as a candidate for the job, but uh, uh, the one thing the, while we were doing games, the one thing you kept telling me was, you know, when you do this, have fun, be prepared, get the commercials in and get the score right. And if you do those four things, you'll have a successful broadcast. And I've always kind of, but believe that, you know, this getting, the, getting the commercials and the score in are very important, but also having fun and being prepared are the other two things that, uh, 
you really need to do. So, and I, I, and I try and do that. So, um, uh, you know, John didn't really offer a lot of advice. You just kind of sat there and watched him work mm-hmm. and you saw how he prepared and you saw how he did games. And, and that's, um, and I never asked him a lot of questions. I just wanted to get in the booth. And when I was spotting for him, I just wanted to make sure I was doing my job and making sure that he had a chance to, to, to call the game and didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, what was that the right guy who caught the pass or was that the wrong guy? And uh, so I just always tried to make sure I was spot on when I was spotting for him, which by the way, is a tough job. And plus you have Brent Hubbs doing game day hosting and spotting, but every well, unless that's changed because no, no, he's I know, still there. I know Brent Hubbs does a lot of the game day hosting now with yeah. the ball network from on site. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, Brent is probably knows as much about the team and some of the backstories of the team as, as anybody. And so he's done a really good job uh, doing all those things for us. And we're very fortunate to have him. But was Tim Prius one of the first guys when you got the job you were willing to get, or did the team or did the you know team say yeah. here's a list of options of people? It's in- yeah, it's interesting. Uh, after I took the job, um, we did have a meeting. It was Coach Fulmer and Coach Dickey and Ed Huster, the Vol Network, and myself, and we all sat down and we started putting together a list of any possible people that we thought could do the job as the color commentators. Now you got to remember mm-hmm. we had to fill the Vol network slots, uh, sideline and analyst. And we had to fill the CSS slots because the CSS games are getting ready to get started. So we had to fill those slots as well. And, um, so we sat down and, um, everybody threw names out and we, we compiled the list and I, I guess maybe there were 20 people on the list. And then we went through and did uh, pros and cons on each one of them. What are the pros? What are the cons? And the ones with the most pros uh, are the ones we interviewed. And, uh, and Tim was obviously, I thought uh, uh, clear choice because of the fact that, you know, he was a lawyer uh, so he was very concise with his words. He played quarterback in high school, but he played safety in college. Oh, wow. So, uh, so he knew both sides of the ball, and that's an advantage. You know, quarterbacks see the game differently than everybody else, and safety say that, see the, kind of see the game differently because they've got to know what all the parts are doing in front of them. And uh, so – and. Tim obviously was really smart because, you know, 18 interceptions in a career, that's pretty special. So, um, so Tim was a clear choice. And then uh, Jeff Francis was another quarterback. We decided uh, he'd be a great choice. And then uh, we ended up with Bob Bell, I guess, on TV to do those CSS games to start. And Mm -hmm. then uh, Pat Ryan and I guess Condridge did them for a while. And we, we had several different people. And you've rotated through a lot of sideline people after uh, Francis over the yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, Jeff didn't want to leave, but his son was playing college football, and so he wanted to go watch him play. And uh, mm-hmm. 
then, you know, Andy Kelly, we got him and he started his own uh, insurance business down there in Cleveland. So he couldn't get away all the time. And uh, Mike Stoll, you know, it's amazing. You, uh, you can tell kind of how we've run through everybody a little bit doing the analyst. I mean, it's a, it's a huge time commitment if this is the second job for you. I mean, it's a huge time commitment being away from your family for those, you know, mm-hmm. the weekends and those type things and yep. being gone all day Saturday. So it's, uh, and then depending if you're coming back Saturday night or Sunday morning, if you're going right. to be yeah. able to get back in time to spend time with the family, go to church services on Sunday, if that's yeah. what you do. Right. So it's not, you know, it's, this is not for everybody. And, uh, I'm just, you know, glad that it's remarkable that Bert and Tim and I have been able to stay together for going on 22 years now. And now you currently have Maddie Glab as your sideline reporter. I think she's the, I think if I'm not mistaken, she's the first female sideline guy for you get sideline people for you get. Well, yeah, well, we had Maddie and then she, she left and went to the. Um, oh, so you're going to have to go find another one. Yeah. Well, yeah, we got, had Casey Funderburg in there last year. She went yeah. to. Uh, uh, Maddie got a job with the Buffalo Bills, so she's really? up there in Buffalo. Yeah, so how about she that? that? Yeah, she Western did that New York. Yeah. So anyway, so so you got Casey Thunderbird for the sec for his second year. Yeah, she'll be coming back next year. We hope. What do you feel? What do you feel like with all the side on people that you you know dealt with, and what do you feel like they brought to the broadcast from the field that? priest may not be able to you know give to you besides besides the basic like quick hits injury reports and other things yeah well they're just another set of eyes you know i i started when i started doing jefferson pilot i mean i was i was the sideline guy and i was tim brando uh actually bob carpenter was the oh yeah i forgot yeah yeah bob carpenter and tim foley and myself we were the first uh crew to do the uh jefferson pilot games and um, I think they might have been Lincoln Financial back in those days. I think it was Lincoln Financial because I, 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 if I remember right, I know you worked with Bob Carpenter. I think you did it. I think you worked sidelines because I remember one game where Tim Brando was doing football, and I think you may have been on the sideline for that. Right. Yeah. So well, I, they, I know you've worked with your fair yeah. share of broadcasters over the years from the yeah. sidelines. Yeah. Well, I was, I was hired as the sideline guy, and then when November games came around we had what they called splits because mm-hmm. that was during rating periods and we got to do two games. So in November I would get to do the play by play. So, um, so I would, for the first eight games or so I'd do sidelines and then I do play by play in November for the rest of those games. And then, um, so Carpenter came on first and he stayed for two years, I think. And then he went to the St. Louis Cardinals mm-hmm. and, uh, then Tim, Timmy B came in and, uh, I guess we did four or five years together. And then I stepped in when Tim went to CBS full time that I started doing the, uh, you know, and Tim had a lot of, um, it was, we loved working with Tim. I mean, he's so much energy and so much fun. Uh, but you know, the more he worked with CBS that opened up the door for me to do more play by play because, uh, he would get called away to do some games for CBS and, uh, that would open the door. And then I get to do those splits in November. So I was doing, I don't know, four or five games back then. But I was doing about half the schedule uh, play-by-play and half the schedule sidelines. And then um, my last year or so that I was – when Tim went to CBS full-time, then I got a chance to do uh, to do um, 
full time Jefferson Pond. But I learned a good lesson too. Um, when uh, Bob Carpenter left to go to the, the Cardinals, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, this is a great chance for me to step in. You know, I've been doing some play by play, and it's a great chance for me to step in and be the number one guy. And I was had convinced myself that uh, I was going to be the guy. You were ready to go. I was ready. I said, "There's this." They couldn't make a better choice than this. And uh, suddenly, so I get the, the Jimmy Rayburn calls me. He was the executive producer of uh, Jefferson Pilot back then. He calls me, and he says, uh, "Boy," said, uh, "We got uh, got to make it. Got to hire a new play-by-play guy." I said, "Yeah." He said, uh, "We made that choice," and I'm going, "Oh, great! This is great! This is the moment I waited for." He said, "We're hiring Tim Brando." And I went, holy crap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, man, talk about a dream crusher. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, and so so what's your your normal reaction is, oh, well, you know, you're, you're making a big mistake, and I quit, and I'm not doing this, and I earn, you know, doing all that immature, stupid Immature stuff. rationale, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, knee-jerk reaction and that kind of stuff. And um, I said, oh, that's a great hire. That's a great hire. And he said, boy, we still want you to stay on and, you know, do sideline and, you know, fill in for Tim when he can't do the games. Are you good with that? I said, Jimmy, I'm great with that. And then he asked me, I didn't ask him, you know, if I'm going to get a pay raise and all that, that kind of stuff. And it turned out he gave me a little bit of a raise, but I was just thankful to be doing the opportunity. I get the opportunity to do the games. Cause I'm thinking, you know, if, um, if I would, you know, act like an idiot and throw a hissy fit, and uh, quit, how many people would have a resume on Jimmy Rayburn's desk the next day? Oh, and, uh, like a thousand and probably even a line further out the door. Yeah. So, don't. but it, it really, it really taught me a valuable lesson. Okay. There's a reason why he didn't hire me. And I needed to find out that reason. Why did he think that um, Tim Brando was a better choice than me? And so I needed to improve and get to the point where I was, you know, equal to or close to Tim Brando and my skill level and all those type things. So it was, it was a hard lesson. It was a painful lesson, but it was a good lesson for me. And so I went back to work and, um, you know, I had the same similar situation with Pat summit. Uh, it was mid eighties and, uh, I've been doing her games and I've been, you know, I had a great job. I was working at channel 10 and, mm-hmm. Working on the ball network. Plus you know, one. Keep going. Who is that? Okay. But I, uh, I had my I had my I had my uh headphones on. Keep going. Sorry. Okay. So uh so anyway, I I was thinking, you know, I've been doing the same stuff for like six years. It's been good. I mean, I'm on channel ten and mm-hmm. doing all this other kind of stuff. And if I give this up, you know, there'd be a, another stack of resumes on the desk the next day. But, uh, Plus one. Is this is this going to be? One. Oh no, you're good. Uh, is this is this going to be what I'm doing for the next 20 years of my life? You know what what's next? So I take Pat Summit, ask her to go to lunch with me. So we go down to the soup kitchen on Market Square, and and uh, and so I asked. You know, she just won her first national championship. So it would have been 87, I guess. Right. She just she just won her first national championship. And I thought that she was going to retire after winning the Olympic games in 84. I mean, what's better than, you know, winning a gold medal for your country. And so, um, 
but I, you know, so what, plus what, one. Sorry. What? What? Six tip? one. Ah. Anyway. Yeah, I'll well, get back to them. What kept you motivated to keep coaching? She said, "Well, you know, I knew we were close, and I needed to, to evaluate everything we were doing in our coaching and recruiting and practicing and nutrition with our players." And I went to see Phil Jackson about setting up the triangle offense, and, you know, with Shamiqua and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I just knew that you know I had to get better as a coach, and I had to do this. And had, I'm going, "Wow, that's pretty." So then I kind of laid out my you know, sob story about, you know, I've got a good thing going, but I haven't been, I guess what I was trying to ask her is, you know, how come CBS and ESPN has not seen my greatness? Why haven't they? The typical question that all of us people ask, are we good enough? Or if not, why? Yeah. I even ask that question to myself in my head. Like, you know, why do, you know, I keep being turned down, even though I feel like I'm improving, but there's a lesson in there somewhere. Yeah. And so, uh, so, but I wasn't asking her to, to make any phone calls for me or doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I just said, I, and she, she looked at me. I'll never forget it. She had that stare across the table and she said, Bob, I don't know anything about politics. And I was asking her to kind of give me some motivation, kind of boot me in the ass a little bit. <laughs> and she goes, um, she goes, Bob, I, you know, I don't know anything about the politics of broadcasting. I don't know who they hire and who they fire and how they go about hiring people. But my guess is the reason that your phone's not ringing and that you're not moving up is that you're just not good enough. And I wasn't expecting to hear that. <laughs> it's like she hit me in the head with a hammer. She said, you're just not good enough. You got to get better. She said, I think you do great. She said, I listen to your games because they, they would put the radio call over the, uh, the uh, video, their, their game, you know, their game film. So they would know the score and all that kind of stuff. And uh, she said, I think you do a great job, but somebody doesn't. And there's a reason that you, you know, you didn't. And it's kind of the same thing with when uh, they picked Tim Brando over me to do the Jefferson pilot. I had to figure out why they picked Brando and why they didn't pick me. And, uh, and you want to, you know, you want to be mad and you want to be mad at the guy that's hiring you and you want to be mad at the, the, the guy that got the job that you wanted and all those sure. types of things. But the bottom line is you need to figure out yourself and dig down deep and come up with an answer why you didn't get it. What did you do not to get the job? And that's the tough thing for a lot of broadcasters. And uh, so I learned, I, I just had to get better and I had to work and I had to improve my skills. And um, luckily I might've done it well enough to be able to move up a little bit. So, uh, but uh, those were those are those are pretty good life lessons I learned. Did you figure out the answer? No, I think you're always trying to get better. I mean, I there's not a single call that I make that I think, gosh, I could have done that better. And uh, you know, I marvel at the uh, Ben Scullys and the Jack Bucks and the Marty Brennemans and those mm-hmm. guys that never screw up a big call they're they're at their best at the biggest moments john ward was the same way i mean john had an unbelievable knack of capturing the moment and not yelling and screaming and going out of control but just being under control but yet having that excitement in his voice and uh being able to capture the moment i mean jack buck's call on kirk gibson's home run i can't believe what i just saw i mean it was perfect 
I it mean, captured it beautifully. All he did was just after he made the call, he shot up. Yeah, he shut up. And uh, that's the hard thing sometimes for all of us to learn. You know, you just you just got to shut up and uh, let the emotions take over. But uh, anyway, so I, I think if you ever think that you're good, that you're not going to get better. So you you always have to be really hard on yourself. And, and you know, I stay away from social media. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. And uh, because I, I think that's so counterproductive. And, uh, it, you know, it'd be like a CEO of United Airlines going on um, uh, social Instagram media. Or, yeah, and, or whatever. And getting advice from, you know, people on how to run the airlines. Well, those people aren't very qualified to do it. They, now they might have some good uh, uh, constructive criticism. And, you know, if somebody takes the time to write me an email or send me a note, I'll answer those folks, but I don't, I don't spend any time on social media. I just think it's counterproductive. And most of those people are so negative. Uh, they're just looking to stir stuff up. So I don't, I don't. And some of the guys I know in the business that get on there and, and beat themselves up because somebody was critical of one of their, calls or one of their games I, I said why do you waste your time you know you knew if you blew it you knew if you didn't have a good game I mean you don't you don't have to have some you know guy uh, telling you that you you know it and you, and you know the strange it. thing we all have had them even me yeah we've all had the sucky game we've all had oh. the oh my god I can't believe I made that call at this point in time or yeah oh my god yeah. I didn't you know I didn't give, you know, the other team what they deserved because they made a better play than we did. Yeah. Well, you 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 listen to your call and you go, gosh, I wish I would have said that. You know, mm-hmm. they, you get that all the time. So, anyway, I uh, I I just I've always tried to just to be better the next day, and I I still enjoy going to the games, still enjoy calling them, and uh, and that's the whole deal. It, you know, I, I hope people enjoy them, and but I'm, I'm having fun doing them. And uh, it's like <laughs> I go back to John Ward one time, uh, you know, and I was asking about, you know, how do you handle criticism? He said, well, he said, we all get it. He said, but the way I look at it, he said, I got the job and that guy doesn't. So. Exactly. <laughs> hey, so. you, got the, you got the best seat in the house. You're getting paid by your employer. You get a chance to eat the, well, I don't know if the best food in the world, but no, hey, it's, not, it's yeah, not the best food in the world, but hey, you still yeah. get a chance to, you get a media pass. You get to be around the players and be around yeah. the coaches. And speaking of yeah. coaches and players, before we close this thing down, yeah, who have been your favorite coaches to deal with and even some of the coaches that were kind of standoffish, but what did these coaches give you to improve you as a broadcaster that when you took what they gave you up to the booth, it was there. Um, You know, they're all kind of, they're all kind of the same. They're all uh, very high strung. (laughs) <laughs> very highly motivated, very paranoid. Uh, they think if uh, they they think that if they tell you something ten minutes before the game, that the opposing team is going to find out about it. And yet, you know, the opposing team has probably known all week that this guy isn't going to play. 
you know, because they've got spies and they figure this stuff out. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't really you you can't really keep anything from these, but they think you can, and that's why they <laughs> looks like Fort Knox around all these practice fields because they think somebody's going to look in and see that they're working on a quarterback sneak for Saturday's game and short yardage or something, you know, something like that. <laughs> and uh, but you know, they I, I've all they, each one has been different, and each one has their own set of ways on how they want to do things. That's what I found has been the most interesting about all these. And I've worked with a bunch of different coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I was amazed at uh, how Bruce Pearl coached his teams, how hard they played. I, I think that's the one thing. <laughs> can a coach get a team to play for him? And can a coach get a team to play hard? Sure. Pat, Summit had, Pat Summit had an amazing ability to get her teams to play hard. And, um, you know, and sometimes you don't have as much talent, but, uh, you know, and Lane Kiffin was, he was an interesting guy. I, I thought of, of any season, any one season when he, that one year he was here, mm-hmm. his team probably played over its head in more games than any team that I've seen, um, since I've been at Tennessee. I mean, his teams, uh, were not the most talented or his team wasn't the most talented but they played hard every single game and mm-hmm. they were well coached. And I, I really enjoyed being around Lane Kiffin. I know that, uh, you know, he had his warts like everybody and he was kind of young and immature at the time he took the job. And I'm sure there are a lot of things he'd rather, you know, would like to do over, but uh, he was a heck of a football coach and his teams really played well. And uh, so I, I expected, I respected that, you know, Philip Fulmer had it really rolling there for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, his teams were, you know, you go back and look at the rosters of some of his teams, and it's almost mind-boggling. They were, they were so talented. So, uh, anyway, but I've, I've enjoyed every coach I've been around. Each one, and again, each one's different. Each one's got their own traits, and um, but you don't become the head coach at the University of Tennessee without being a really good coach and a really good uh, people person. I really believe that you got to deal with people and, and it's a tough job. It's a demanding job. And, uh, but every coach that I've dealt with has uh, under kind of understood my job and they have really um, helped me. I mean, Rick Barnes is as good as anybody of knowing that, Hey, you've got a job to do too. And, um, so I'm going to help you as much as I can. So, and I appreciate that. And they, they understand that we play a valuable part in getting the word out about their teams. And so um, I've, I've enjoyed them all. And um, I've always had a great respect for coaches. I, that probably goes back to my, my old high school football coach. I, there's nobody that I respect more than him. And uh, cause he, he really helped me with a lot of life lessons when I was growing up. And um, so I, I think that um, all coaches have some kind of influence on you. How do you feel like you're, you know, at the beginning when you were, you know, when you had, we're trying to figure out the broadcasting thing and maybe you were dating at that point or, you know, trying to build something with some lady. How do you feel like, you know, that as you move forward, family life, with your lovely bride and so on and so forth. How do you feel like, you know, the family has dealt with it over the years since you've gone from different place to different place? 
Well, and, you, and you've been away more often than not. Yeah, I've been blessed because, uh, you know, my wife and I have been together since high school. So we've, we've kind oh. of grown up together. And uh, and uh, so she's been the rock while I was out, you know, going all over the country. She's the one that kept the strong foundation here. So really blessed that uh, she kind of understood my role and and we work well together. We've been a pretty good team. So, but you've, that's a big part of it. If, uh, if, you know, if your wife doesn't understand that you got to be gone on Saturday and there might be something going on with the kids, then you're, um, it, it's not going to work out well. So you, you've got to have, there's a lot of give and take and I've been very blessed. So what do you feel like the life lessons of a family dynamic from the beginning to now have been and have they changed over the years since you know no you've been doing this you've been doing this broadcasting thing for so long it's probably the only yeah. thing you you know have known yeah uh those things don't change you gotta you you've got to really understand that you got to make time for both and you got to really enjoy the time that you are together and make it quality i mean we always had the um I'd get all those miles, you know, flying around for Jefferson pilot, but we'd use those miles in the summer to take trips. Mm -hmm. We load up the kids and we go to San Diego or we'd go up to Canada or we'd go to New York or we'd go different places and go to Florida, go to the beach. We, but I, I'd <laughs> use those miles that, uh, in the summertime for the kids. And, uh, so we, we, again, it's about, it's about the time, but it's also about valuable time. And, uh, and I, and I had to learn that a little bit too. And, but we, you know, we worked together, Tammy and I worked together in all of this and uh, kids turned out great, got great grandkids. And <laughs> everything's been fine. So. And what do you feel like your parents instilled in you from a young age and how big has faith been for you in your whole life as you, you know, travel this journey, you continue to travel it, you know, you keep, you know, working and trying to get better and everything else. Even though I know there's some days you're like, man, if I, you know, if they, if I feel like I have to quit this, what else can I do? But you still yeah. love doing what you do. I'm too old of a dog to learn new tricks. I think. <laughs> uh, no, it was, you know, it's an interesting question because of, uh, my parents uh, were, got divorced when I was in fourth grade and we were in Texas at the time. And so my mom moved back home uh, to uh, Ohio and, and uh, took us with her. And so, uh, so my dad's down in Texas and we're in Ohio and, but he's making every uh, effort he can to be there for big football games. And my sister was, uh, in music, she later sang at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. So, oh wow, uh, yeah. So she she had the talent in the family, but uh, <laughs> but if, if you know if there was an operetta or she had a big concert or what, he would make that drive from Dallas all the way to Dayton, Ohio. And so I respected him for that, and uh, I I thought you know he he knew that the family, even though we weren't together, was still important. And mm -hmm. and uh, he I'd usually get a phone call from him on. Uh, Saturday night trying to find out how I that tells you about my dating life in high school but he called, <laughs> he, he called me Saturday night to see how the football game went what was going on and he so he'd check in on us we always knew he was uh, one phone call away so that was that was always big but 
Um, what helped was me was I had so many good friends uh, and their parents, their dads and stuff would, you, you know, cause back in the sixties, divorce is not, that wasn't, you didn't do it. I mean, that was taboo. Was, that wasn't, that's one of those. It's like, you know, you, you better, you know, you better find a way to work it out better for worse connected you part because yeah, yeah. You, you wanted to be, you know, with that person and that's what you did. Yeah. That's just, you know, you didn't, you didn't do it, but mom had the courage to, to do it and pull us out of Texas and threw us in a car one day and we drove up to Ohio. And two days later, I'm in a brand new school. And, and, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's really, you know, you talk about how things work out. I had a really big time Texas draw. And so when I, when I moved and I was pretty big for my age back then and didn't grow much after sixth grade, but I was one of the biggest kids in the class. And, uh, but I had this horrible Texas draw and nobody could understand me. And they called me big Tex. And, <laughs> and so I'm God, you know, I'm, I'm talking like a cowboy and doing, you know, doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so my fourth grade teacher, Sally Madden, um, I'm surprised you still remember the name of your oh, fourth grade I've, teacher. Because <laughs> most folks would forget their teachers after they leave school. I still have a crush on her. I, I, she was unbelievable. And uh, she left us late in the year to get married. And we all were all just crushed that she left. Mm -hmm. But uh, she insisted that I take speech lessons in fourth grade. Wow. And I, of course I was against that as I don't need speech lessons and this kind of stuff, but I couldn't say R's and I couldn't, you know, I just had, I just talk like this. And, yeah. and, uh, so she, she insisted that I take speech lessons and, uh, I'm just going, where would I be today if I hadn't have done that? If she hadn't insisted, uh, you know, I might be some kind of country Western singer or something like that, but, uh, <laughs> she, uh, but she probably changed my life too, making sure I took those uh, speech lessons. So little things, you know, people, it, they say it takes a village. And I think that's true. And, but the, all the dads that would step up and make sure I went to the father, son banquets and went to Reds games and kind of filling in for you know, the fact that my dad wasn't there. That was, that was really special growing up. So for you, like, I know you're still, Lead broadcaster Tennessee. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention. I know from time to time that Bert can't travel on the road with you. You have different color analysts with you. I know you just what last year, a couple of years ago, brought Bill Justice into the fold for basketball. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll use Bill, and if he can't do it, Steve Hamer's done some games. Steve Ray's done some games. Uh, you know, Dane Bradshaw kind of got to start with us doing games, mm -hmm. and uh, and so yeah, we um. um we, you know, it's again, it goes, you know, Bert's running his own company. So there's some games that he just can't do. We understand that. So uh, we're just lucky these other guys are really anxious to step in and do it. What's it like when you have to fly solo? But you've had to do more than once. Uh, you know, it's, of course, you know, back in the day, I did all the lady ball games solo. Sure. Um, it, it is a little bit different because you learned uh, the pacing is different. The pacing is you got to fill those gaps. And, um, you know, John Ward preferred to work solo. Uh, I kind of prefer having a color analyst because I think it adds to the broadcast. And, um, so just a different skill set. I mean, it's just, uh, you got to talk a lot more and, uh, but some, you know, some people prefer it. So for you, like 
what are your do's and don'ts for like the young broadcasters that are trying to work up the ladder for this thing to reach the brass ring of getting to where they want to get to? Well, don't guess. Uh, don't anticipate. Uh, don't question the officiating. They Ooh, know that's a bit. That's a tough one for a lot of folks. Yeah, including me from time to yeah. time. But the officials know the rules better than you do. Exactly. If you're going to if you're going to criticize an official, you better know the rule. And um, <laughs> and the other thing we talked about earlier that you're not the story. The story is the story. Don't let your ego and the fact that you think that you know you're a big time broadcaster get in the way of reporting on the game. That's your job to report on the game. And uh, a lot of a lot of guys kind of get that mixed up a little bit. But um, and so many guys want to anticipate what's going to happen, and they build it up to this crescendo, and then the guy drops the pass or something like that. So you know, don't anticipate. Just call what you see, and if you're excited about it, somebody else will be excited about it how do you, you know, deal with spotting boards, depth charts, and how do you make sure that besides the spotter, if the spotter's unsure, how do you make sure that you keep yourself mentally sharp on players, numbers, where they are on the field and, you know, if, where they, you know, where they caught the ball and where the ball is when they catch it. What's well, your process uh, on all that? that? You know, that's Luther. It's interesting. You say that that's the hard thing. And you have to force yourself to do it. And uh, one thing that I've had to work on, and I'm probably still not that very good at it, is spotting the ball when the when a pass is intercepted. Right. Okay. And especially with a pile of bodies. Well, but the ball is spotted away, and you know, all you want to say is it's intercepted, and he's running it back to the. Well, where did he catch it? Mm-hmm. Where was the ball caught? That to me, that has always been one of the toughest things because you have to force yourself to do that. It's intercepted at the forty because that gives you, that gives the listener a basis of you know where this play has started. Right. So uh, that to me, and and that's a hard thing to do because you want to get so caught up in calling the play as the guy's going down the field, but you need to, you know, every play has a start, every play has an end, and you got to make sure where you started that play. How do you, you know, do a, you know, run through in the press box when you're getting set up for a game broadcast? How do you, what things are your go-tos that you have to have, even when you go back and study, when you feel like you've done everything game prep-wise, Sunday through Friday, after all the coaches' interviews, before, you know, all the pregame stuff gets going? How do you keep yourself from the nerves and how do you go back and make sure that, okay, I need to make sure I've got this and I need to make sure that I have no. that just to make sure that you have everything. So you're not caught off guard, but I know there's some occasions where even you're caught off guard with maybe something that you may have studied for, but it still, you know, pops up. Well, yeah. I mean, late scratches, late injuries, suspensions. <laughs> I mean, you should always go down to the locker room and, check the, you know, because some, you know, obviously sometimes the coaches don't tell you, but if you go down to the locker room before the game and you check jerseys, if the jersey's hanging up, you know the guy's going to gonna dress. You're not sure he's going to play, but you know he's going to dress. Right. If the jersey if the jersey ain't hanging up in his locker, there ain't no way he's playing. So that's kind of one way of getting around the coach is maybe not telling you everything. And um, 
So, but you have a checklist. I mean, everybody has a checklist. You do this and you, this is where you put these stats and this is where you put this and this is where you put your media guide and this is where you put this and you put your binoculars here and you put, you know, you, you do your pregame here and you send it back. I mean, you, you got to be in a routine because you ever get off that routine. Um, then that's when you get in trouble. And so, and you get rattled if you kind of get off your, your, your routine a little bit, you know, for example, uh, if you're sitting there and right certain time, you know, two hours before the game or two and a half, I'll kind of be going over my notes and, and checking pronunciations and those type of things. And then mm-hmm. somebody walks in the booth uh, and they start talking to you and well, suddenly 20 minutes go by and that throws your, you know, th- throws you off kilter. It, you like to see the guy, but still you've got your, uh, routine. You don't want your concentration broken because you're working on something. Especially yeah, for the day of the game. Yeah, you're in your routine and you want to get that finished. So uh, that's that's the key thing. You just gotta you gotta be in a routine and um, um, and stay in a comfort zone, sort of. And that's that's what I try and do. When did you take over Vol Calls? Because I know I think Vol Calls was like the Sierra Tennessee Vol Network tradition. And I don't know when Vol Calls actually started, but you know, I I don't know. I I can't even remember. I you know, I did it for a long time and then I had to give them up um because of doing the Jefferson Pilot stuff. I couldn't I couldn't work for a specific school when I was doing Jefferson Pilot. So then I came back when I started doing the Tennessee stuff. So uh I, you know, I can't even remember when Vol Call started. It was uh, Coach Majors was the coach. I remember that. Uh, and I know what was going on when Andy Kelly was the quarterback because Andy used to call in to Vol Calls. He would, <laughs> he would change his voice and use a phony name, but he would always – he would call in to Vol Calls and ask Coach Majors questions. So, uh, uh, anyway, so that would have taken us back into the 80s, I guess. So, uh Anyway, it's it, we've been doing it a long time. We've been doing and it a long time. I guess the Vol Notebook started when you took over, or was that something that? Yeah, that was, was something kind of developing. Yeah we, yeah, we did that. For, started that, and uh, about I don't know, fifteen, twenty years ago. So we've been doing that for a while too. So, what are the things are you you know looking to work on with the network, or are you pretty much gonna? keep it status quo or now that Layfield IMG College is not taking over per se, but like what are the things do you feel like could be down the pike so fans can get more access to the balls? Yeah, you know, I don't know. That's you know, social media is and again I said I'm not a big social media guy, but the, all the emphasis now is really on social media and trying to get the word out that way. They people believe that's the way to connect with the with the younger fans is just through social media. And um, uh, I don't know whether, you know, the time will tell whether that's true or not. I think there still is a big audience listening to the games on the radio. I think a lot of people still listen to them and now they've listened to them different ways. I mean, they listen to them on their phones now and over their computers, but uh, you know, live sports is still a very vital part of uh people's lives and uh, so there's there will always be a place for um you know live sports whether on radio or tv or either 
heck, who knows, in 10 years, there might even be different ways to distribute the games. But uh, uh, I think there will always be room for play-by-play guys, and uh, as long as that's in the fold, then I feel good about that. So last question for you, and I know I've taken over two hours of your time, and I appreciate it. We've got We've covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> and I know – it's been a blast and hope we'll get a chance to do it again, even though it took us a little bit to actually get the connection, but it was well worth it. Yeah. Where do you feel like from the days when you were starting technology wise, equipment wise to the leaps and bounds technologies made and how equipment has changed now from when you started to now? Well, I'll give you two examples. When I was doing the, uh, I used to have to do a hour pregame show. Uh, back back in the 70s, I guess, or the 80s, called Big Orange Football Today. And John would tape all the segments, like the Ford forecast with Bill Anderson. And, but we'd have to do everything a week in advance. And so, for example, we might be playing Alabama this week while I'm working on the Memphis Big Orange Today broadcast for next week. And so game would, would be over, and I'd go to WUOT uh, in the communications building. And I uh, have one master reel, reel-to-reel tape. and uh, Was that with I, the razor blade? Uh, no, we didn't use razor blades on that one. But I would, uh, uh, I would just sit there and I'd just, you know, take my tape recorder and then I would play the, these segments and I would build it as we went. And it would take me from like midnight till 6 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, because I had because after you got it done, then you had to go back and time it, and listen to all the segments, and so you had one master reel, and I'd take that master reel down to the bus station, the old uh, Trailways bus station on Gay Street, and uh, drop it off, and we'd send it to Chattanooga, and they would dub it in Chattanooga, and they would send out, cop you know, hundred copies to a hundred stations across the state of Tennessee, on a reel to reel. And uh, then those stations would send those tapes back so we could use them for the next week. <coughs> and that's, that was our, that was our hour long pregame show. Uh, oh big orange football today. Well, now, you know, you can do that on your computer and you cut and paste and you, you know, edit stuff and then you send it off on an MP3 and, and you're done. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I remember when I was first in, in television, the way we got highlights was, you uh, sent the, you got your tape and you had to take it down to the bus station and you would send the tapes. So after every Tennessee football game, I would have to make a tape, a dub for the, uh, for the stations in Nashville and Memphis and tri cities and Chattanooga. So I take those uh, tapes over to the Greyhound bus station on Magnolia and uh, they send those tapes out. And then same thing, you'd be waiting uh, if Tennessee played a basketball game on Monday night, uh, you'd be waiting Tuesday afternoon at Channel 10, hoping your dang tape would come in from Nashville so you can show highlights of the Tennessee game. Well, now they're just little computers uh, right next to each sports reporter's desk at Channel 10. You dub your video, you stick it in the machine, push a button, and it's up on the satellite. So tech, technology has really, really improved since I started. And uh, that's the one thing you can't wait till in 10 years. I mean, we do, we do coach, you know, the post game interviews. Down in the coach, locker room. 
we do it in the locker room and then you get done and just hit a button and you email it back to the station and they turn it around and they play it from there. I mean, it used to be, that would be a big time production to be able to do that. But now with technology, it uh, makes it really easy and simple. So, uh, and again, I can't wait for 10 years to see where the technology is. And I know at the basketball games, courtside, you know, with basketball, you're interviewing the coach in the locker room for pregame or, Mm-hmm. You know, an empty yeah. building for pregame and then postgame, you and Bird or you and whoever on your color side will, you know, do the postgame chat live with the coach. And I guess from time to time you will get a player, maybe not all yeah. the time, but. Yeah, we yeah we try to every game. Yeah. But on the road, we, same thing, we tape them and then we just email them back to the station and then we get on the bus and go. So. It you know again things have really changed down through the years and it's so much easier now to do things than it used to be. Has there been anything tougher? Has there been anything that's been tough with all the technology changes that you kind of wish technology would slow down a little bit? No, I don't think so. You know, it's I think it's that's one thing about it that the you know the quality of the sound, the quality of the pictures, all the high definition. I mean everything looks just so much better and it's so much easier now to do than it used to be. How much do you still listen back to yourself? Quite a bit, quite a bit. Just, uh, trying to make sure that, uh, uh, there's no slippage or, you know, it's, and they, they say, you'll know when it's, you've been doing it too long, but I don't, I'm not there yet. I mean, I still enjoy the games and still enjoy, uh, being around the guys and around the coaches and, uh, I, you know, I still contend that doing the games is the next best thing to playing. And, uh, I always enjoyed playing and I always enjoy doing games. So, um, anyway, it's, I've been very fortunate and, uh, in my career to have a lot of opportunities. I've tried to not screw them up and, uh, try to do the best job I can. And I, I think that's one thing that, um, if you really love what you're doing and you're dedicated to it and you, you're going out to, to try and do the best job you possibly can, uh, then, you know, that's all you can do. And, um, but I, I enjoy it and, um, hope to keep doing it for a while. How big is video when you're game prep for like a different opponent or how much well, video do you yeah, use? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very important. <laughs> Tim and I spend a lot of time, on Wednesdays and then I'll look at other things during the week because of, um, you know, you want to get kind of a feel for how the team is going to play on third down and, and, uh, what, what the guys look like. I mean, you got their numbers, but you know, a lot of times on the field, you can, you can, you can call guys by their, their characteristics, you know, what their body type or body size or how they wear their socks or, you know, they're different things that you can, you can tell and, or who the game, who the best players are on the team and those, and those type things. So the, the video is really important and it really, cause you're not really surprised when they come out there in the field and you kind of know um, different running backs, you kind of get their style and you kind of know what they're going to do. So um, yeah, I think the video, video study is really important. It's been a fun, this has been fun. Hope we can hey, do Luther, it again. Always, always good to talk to you, Luther. Uh, thank